Welcome to episode three of the Talking Skiing Podcast. I'm Lenny Joseph, and I want to thank everyone that has listened to the first two episodes so far. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a review and make sure you subscribe so that you'll get the latest episodes as they are released. This week on the Talking Skiing Podcast, I chat with ski tester extraordinaire Wally Phillips. We talk about Wally's early life as a ski racer and how a kid from Pittsburgh made his way west, ultimately becoming a ski tester for Powder Magazine. Wally also talks about the evolution of skis over the last 20 years or so, and even has a story about how he met his wife in a ski town bar. Let's get right into it with Wally Phillips. Hey, Wally, welcome to the Talking Skiing Podcast. How's it going? Hey, Lenny, going great. Uh, Busy as ever, but that's a good thing. I'd rather be busy than bored. Uh, Thanks a ton for having me on. Yeah, no problem, Wally. Hey, we'll talk about your time as a ski tester and your work with Powder Magazine in just a few. But first, I thought I'd find out when you started skiing and how old were you when you started? Oh, I started learning to ski at the ripe uh, young age of two um, in an area called Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. It's in the central western portion of Pennsylvania. I would say it's a straight east drive for about an hour 15 from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised and stayed for 19 years. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth. Uh, it's very tall. No, it's about 780 vertical feet is at its tallest point, but it was also wide. It had 100% snowmaking and 80% night skiing. So as long as it was cold enough, they could make it happen. So there was always some snow for me to go to. And uh, I started in the kinder program there at H3. Nice. Uh, you don't really think of uh, Pittsburgh being a, a hotbed of skiing and that there's you know skiing not that far outside of the city, right? Yeah, you'd be surprised. It used to feel like uh, I was probably one of the only ones talking about skiing whenever I'd go back to my North Pittsburgh suburb and just ramble on about it. People would look at me like, huh, what are you talking about? But you'd be surprised who comes from there. Um, Christy Leckinen. Uh, came from nearby there, as did uh, Tom Walsh. So it's, there's a, it, there's some diamonds in the rough out there. You just got to know how to look for them, and especially in a park aspect, because if you can keep snow going in an area like that and build a great park, which Seven Springs has, you'll turn out some pretty good freestyle athletes pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, you can get with, what do you say, 780 vertical feet. I mean, you can get a lot of laps in in an evening or, or in a day of skiing, that's for sure. Did you grow up uh, as, as a park person or, I mean, I don't know if the park really existed as it does now. I mean, were you, you were probably more into the ski racing side of things. Yeah, that I was. Skin tight suits and bashing red and blue gates. Yep, that is where I kind of uh, started to hone my skills towards. Uh, it was during a kinder race at age six where I started to catch the bug. And I think it was because of everyone's elation that I made it around the gate in the proper way that you're supposed to and made it to the finish line without double tip planting and tomahawking myself. Um, I think that kind of said, okay, these many people are happy with how I just did. Maybe I've got something here. Sure. And you continued on with racing uh, through high school and into college or how far did it take you? Uh, I probably went a little too far with it, um, with how far I stayed in it, but I did definitely go through high school. The high school era was kind of more like a, yeah, I'm ski racing, but yeah, I'm also being with friends because, um, in the age, uh, in the age tiers that you're supposed to go up, I mean, it's all supposed to be fun and games until you're about 13 and then 13, you start deciding how serious you actually want to be. And that's when I started saying, Hey, I want to be serious. 
So I kept skiing at uh, Pennsylvania. And when I graduated high school, I moved on to Plymouth State University where I joined the ski team there. And I uh, did a season there. I uh, didn't really, uh, it, I, I kind of didn't fit the vibe there. Um, it was something to where I had to move onward and I felt like I had to get school done. So actually moved to University of Rhode Island to get the schooling done and just hang out with um, the Division Three ski team there, which was a blast. It was uh, some of the funner times in my life. It was an, it was an interesting time. Um, my drinking team has a skiing problem, but yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that's probably more of a fun type of ski racing environment. And, and you know, as, as much as they're probably serious when they, they get ready to race, uh, everything surrounding it is probably toned down a couple notches from, from some of the other race programs that you were involved with uh, as you were a little bit younger, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The tone back vibe on the outside of it was pretty good. But whenever I'd be at the start gate, it'd be, you know, laser focus. Always. I always knew the course and always would get down as fast as I could. And then after that, I had been turning screws, quote unquote, which means I was a shop tech uh, at Mount Hood uh, over the summers for Atomic. And through that contact, they had gotten me a spot on the Snowbird race team right after I graduated college. And I said, why not? Let's pick up everything and move over to Utah, which was a great time. I enjoyed uh, racing for Snowbird, even though I look back at it and I kick myself a little bit because that was the winter of 2004, 2005 where I believe Alta ended up with 813 inches for the season. I kept wondering why my, my trainings would be canceled. Just like, really? Will it stop snowing? It's not going to stop snowing. Okay, cool. And then about three quarters of the way through the season, I got in high speed crash, about 72 miles an hour. Uh, I don't know. I was just got, I got too floaty in my tuck and I just caught both left side edges and pinwheeled. I, field gold over the ski patrol rope. I field gold two more trees and I ended up in this gully in between two of the uh, established runs. Almost broke my ankle in my boot and I rooster tailed the uh, tail of one of my Super G skis or my Atomic Super G skis. I got so mad about that because I had put 40 pairs of wax onto those suckers four months earlier and they were fast at any ski condition. I was like, oh, jeez, really? I ended up donating it to the US ski team for one of their... Um, for one of their single leg athletes and doing pretty good on it. But by that point, my season was done and I was looking at it and I was looking at how much I was spending and how much I was getting back. I was like, you know what? There's a lot of snow here. There's a lot of fun snow here. I think I can be good. I think it can be done. In uh, about that time as well, uh, 2004, 2005, the skis started changing quite a bit from, you know, you growing up on, on race skis and skiing probably everything on on a pair of quote unquote, what they call now like skinny skis or skinny waisted skis to, it just kind of started, you know, getting wider and wider and wider, which made some of that soft snow and the powder probably even more fun. And, and for a lot of people easier to ski. And I'd imagine for someone like yourself, just a blast. Yeah. It's been, it's funny to look back at uh, ski technology evolution uh, throughout my specific time period as right when I started picking up the gate bashing, the racing side cut started to be established into ski technology and they started getting really wacky with it. If you, anyone remembers the Elon SDX monoblock, which literally resembled an hourglass from a side cut standpoint, that ushered in the idea of like, okay, we're going away from skidded turns and we're going towards, towards carved turns, which honestly was part of what kept racing attractive to me was I love the feeling of just biting an edge in, 
fitting into the turn and just getting that clean feel throughout. Getting always felt wrong to me. So the side cut revolution when it started and when it did was probably one of the reasons that kept me into racing, you know? And then going back to what you said, 2004, 2005 was when they started playing with wits and saying, oh, hey, we could make a super wide ski. Let's see how crazy we can get with this. And then, you know, you got brands like Fatipus, who I don't believe are in production very much anymore, but they were coming out with 140 millimeter wasted skis. And we're like, you can see this? And they're like, yeah, we, I mean, they, they had to tool it in a way where the side cut and the camber had to actually give you a supportable feel on the way down because if you, you can get too big with your waist width because if uh, you get too big, you can't get any ankle flexion in. If you can't get any, any ankle flexion in, you sure as hell can't turn. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, I think it was maybe 98 underfoot or something, and that was a, a fat ski. Uh, back then. And, and I, I thought, wow, I could almost keep up with some of my friends who are, who are clearly better skiers here on a little bit bigger ski. And then I got into, you know, a 105, 106 type of ski. And, uh, and that was really a game changer as uh, it didn't hook the same way, like the skinnier skis in the deeper snow would hook. And I think that for a lot of people was, was where it sort of started turning. And as you said, they, they got so fat and they've kind of come back since. And, and you don't see too many, you know, 140s or 135s or, you know, even much above maybe 122 or something like that for a wasted ski. But you, uh, as, a, as a ski racer, as someone that was a, a strong skier, um, once you switched to the, to the bigger skis, was, was that sort of a, a revelation or did it sort of change the way you skied? It started to a little bit. Uh, the first big ski, the first really big ski I was ever on was an Atomic Big Daddy. And this thing was just, it might as well have been a race ski that was toned down a smidge and ballooned up to like almost 120. And this thing, it still had, we still haven't seen, hadn't seen the rocker revolution yet. I mean, they were only starting to incorporate rocker just a little bit after the width started moving outward. So it's just this big planky beast where I mean, you really had to stay on it. You really had to be on it. Once the width got fatter, I found that you had to use less, you know, you had to use less angles. You had to use, especially in your hips when it comes to ski technique. This modern ski technique from skidding turns to carving turns, you have to make a lot of angles in order to get the most out of the skis. But when they got bigger, that would be a detriment because it would almost dampen them and they wouldn't really come around for you. That's what I was discovering. I mean, could you power them through anything? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that made the, all the Pacific Northwest and all the Sierra cement skiers really happy because they could push around the wet snow, but in the dry stuff, it would just go poof right through it. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't really been all that long in the grand scheme of things uh, since we've had uh, the fat skis and, and things, you know, really started to change. I know uh, when you were probably growing up racing, you know, yeah, the skis would change, but for the most part, they were they were kind of the same. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like every brand, every ski was different. And uh, the companies were putting out a, a ton of different skis and sort of trying to find what worked, what didn't work, but doing it sort of year to year. Yes, the rocker revolution. And it's funny that you bring up the way all these revolutions come along. The side cut revolution comes in. They go to something absolutely bombastic and drastic and then hone themselves back in again. Widening out the width, they go huge and then come back again. Rocker, same thing. Rocker, uh, rocker technology was, I believe, patented by a pair of brothers from Valparaiso. 
uh, back in the mid 80s as it was supposed to be a learning tool as it shortened the effective edge length, which is basically the edge length that you can use to access the snow when you're making a turn. And they, they were using it for like a balance tool, basically. They were saying, okay, these skis won't, you can't balance as well on them. Learn to ski and then get on the new skis. But now it, it's funny how it's changed as we now apply it to, wow, we can make powder so much more fun by upturning the tip and the tail and pushing that camber from positive to negative. The positive camber is what you need to push on to get energy out of the ski which is if you put a pair of skis together you see it kind of a you see a window of a you see a window of a gap in there especially around the waist of a ski where it's supposed to be because that's where all your power comes from but you're seeing the opposite when you get rocker aka negative camber it kind of pushes the ski upward in um and it's the best application is between the tip and the tail and what it does is it in powder it gives you way more float it keeps the tip and the tail above so that you're not catching as much because usually in normal ski conditions you're just centered right sitting there in a groomer you're centered but on a regular cambered ski without any rocker in it at all you would actually have to shift your balance a little bit further back and even more so when there's more snow because uh the tip would dive and now with with this rocker, um, the tip won't dive anymore. The tail won't dive anymore. If you're a directional skier and you got tail rocker, you can actually lean back. You can actually uh, shift your focus back on that tail to give yourself even more lift. Or if you're more freestyle oriented, you can ski switch in powder and not have your tail sketch, which is awesome. And they went crazy with that. They, it, it, I hearken back to the Armada original iteration ARG, which was just this flat like the flat camber underfoot was probably only about 20 centimeters worth and it was a complete reverse camber other than that a dream to ski powder in a nightmare to do anything else in yeah i think everybody focused in on skiing powder so much uh, they kind of forgot that uh, you know once it's been skied out uh, you still got to ski uh, through it for the rest of the day and uh, even though it may start off as powder uh you know a place like sun valley uh, after about an hour or so, it's all skied out for the most part, and then you're skiing chopped up snow, and you got to ski down through that for maybe 2,000 vertical feet. Uh, so there, you know, there wasn't really a, a perfect uh, ski. You know, they went to big fat skis, and and then they started slowly coming back just a little bit. And then you you know you needed multiple pairs of skis uh, for the conditions and depending on the day. Uh, but it seems like over the years here, uh, at least recently, they started making skis uh, that can do a little bit of everything and and getting away from super, super specialized skis, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly where the industry has gone. They realized they were going a little bit too niche with their Uber Ultra powder skis. So they had to hone it back and get a little bit more versatile. I think one other thing I need to cover with that versatility from the move that they made um, from that initial rocker era, for some reason, what else came with that rocker era was really flexi skis. I'm talking K2 Hellbent, the original iteration of the EP Pro from Line, Eric Pollard, who recently just left Line, which was a kind of a big surprise uh, when it came out, but it sounds like he's going to go out and try to do his own thing, which is really awesome. Um, but those skis were really flexy. You almost had to treat them like trampolines because you any energy you put into them, go boing. It's like, well, that's all well and good unless you want to, you know, start charging through stuff and then it's just going to bounce you off the line every time. 
now they're starting to to say to themselves, hey, we can't make these like that anymore. And for the exact same reason that you said, and Sun Valley is a wonderful example of this because at Sun Valley, the terrain can give you a bunch of pockets of soft stuff, but near the end of the, near the bottom of each, each area, whether it's Seattle Ridge, whether it's Warm Springs, whether it's Cold Springs, I mean, a river run, you just, you, you've got to go on long, fast groomers to get to the bottom and it's like, okay, we have to not make our skis super springy anymore. We actually have to have a little bit of dampness to them. Yeah. Well said. I think they have one away from the super flexy skis and, you know, have got to something that you can ski a little bit more, uh, pretty much all over the mountain. Uh, you know, you may be able to get away with a, a big fat ski at, at certain places, uh, where, you know, once you get to the bottom, you're pretty much at the bottom, but for other places, you still got to ski back down through everything. Hey, Wally, I wanted to talk a little bit about ski testing here now. And before we get to that, I don't know if everybody knows or not, but, uh, you know, Powder Magazine closed up shop back in the fall. And I think it came as a big surprise to everybody. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, you know, Powder closing up shop? And, and how did you get into ski testing with those guys? Well, um, first, I got to say, I can't be more hashtag blessed about the last six years that I've been involved with Powder Week. Um, it's been a really cool, really fun, and really interesting ride. Um, I just wanted to say um, to Powder, uh, thank you so much for bringing me on and giving me a chance. Thank you to um, Sierra Schaefer, Matt Hansen, Kevin Back, Dave Reddick, John Davies, everybody. Just thank you because as an 18-year-old kid looking at ski magazine reviews and being enamored by them, it was really cool to have the ability to actually be able to participate in something like that. And I really hope that this is not a goodbye with what happened with Powder. I hope it's a see you later. But um, how I got into it, um, I have to actually have to thank Backcountry and uh, some a person in particular, Johnny Atencio, who was their athlete wrangler at the time. Uh, this was back in um, This was back in 2014. I actually had just gotten off the snow basin demo, the uh, U- the USCSA uh, demo. Uh, I was testing a few skis for backcountry to provide content, and I had gotten an email to where uh, Johnny knew a bunch of the guys on the powder staff at that point, and they, I, I think they needed the last second replacement. I wasn't sure on the deets, but they had reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested? And I'm like, are you kidding? Yes, absolutely. And so I went that first week and as I got immersed into what it was and what it is, I said to myself, okay, you have to knock this out of the park and give them a reason to kick you out. <laughs> This is awesome. And is it a a serious testing uh, environment? I mean, not maybe not serious as far as like how people are are acting when they're not skiing. But I mean, when you're out on the snow and I mean, is there like a a clipboard with one through 10 on it for each type of ski and, you know, flex and all that kind of stuff? Or is it more just go out, ski on these things, report back how you feel about them? Very good question. I will say this. From a time spent standpoint and a time schedule standpoint, it is actually quite regimented. There's a schedule that comes out a couple months before we would do our thing, and it would be a pretty 
they would be a dead on schedule. That's one of the things that they ask is for whatever they need us for. You need to be on time. So, okay. Say no more. I, I like being on time. But when it comes to the time on snow, it's a little bit more laid back. And I, I like this because I think they realized the, that they had a lot of art based individuals amongst their tester pack and they didn't want to stifle our creativity. They wanted us to bring out our own creativity when it comes to how we feel about the skis we were on, where we were taking them, how we wanted to talk about them, what we talked about back and forth with the individuals that joined us for each brand, whether it be the sales rep for that particular region or the CEO of the brand itself. They just wanted our creativity to flow because they knew that we would get the best material, they would get the best material out of us that way. And I felt the same way. But when it talks to a personal, serious, um, yeah, I was that guy with the clipboard. I was that guy tacking notes onto my iPhone on how I felt, what I talked about with the uh, brand representatives that were there, pros and cons, in what conditions. I, I'm usually, I'm personally very regimented. I've felt that I've had to be because once I start getting, when I, once I started getting personally regimented, good things started happening in my life and I don't, I, why, why quit a good thing? So you took it, you know, rather serious, at least that first year when you showed up, uh, more serious than some or were some there, you know, that got in sort of based on the, the merit of who they were and some of their skiing uh, background or did you notice pretty much everybody paying attention to, to the skis and, and trying to do their best for, for powder and, and for the ski testing? I'll tell you what, most everybody there is really on their game. They, um, they're they on their game in their own way. They digest in their own way. Some of the guys and girls there, they didn't need to do what I did. They could just let the words flow on their own. I think I'm less artistic in comparison. I'm a little bit... That's why I'm regimented, because the more art-based individuals, they could just let their words flow naturally. I'm not as natural at that. I draw stick figures. They make Bob Ross paintings. But it's one of those things where I'm going to make the most out of the stick figure that I can by reading a book on how to draw stick figures and making the most detailed plan involved in doing so. So that's kind of that's kind of the spectrum you saw when it comes to perspectives. Uh, yeah, Wally, when, once you uh, were done testing there for after that first week, did you realize like how much people would be following along with how the, the tests came out and reading about them and, and basing their ski purchases on some of the stuff that you had to say about particular brands and skis? You know, it didn't really hit me until the first issue came out. It hit me right about there. I looked at it. I saw what was on there. I saw how good it looked from a display standpoint, how good Powder did with putting it together. And I saw my words in a ski magazine, that's what it hit me. And then it hit me again when I ended up getting a few personal emails from people to my back, then backcountry work email asking me questions. I, I stood this with the question started to flow and I said, okay, I greatly underestimated the impact this was going to have. <laughs> yeah. So Wally, I mean, once that uh, magazine came out and you know you started getting emails and personal emails about gear that magazine and and the ski testing in general is is really what a lot of people base their ski purchases on you know maybe they can go demo a ski or a couple skis on a demo day but for the most part especially if you're buying them before the season starts and, and basing them off of the uh, reviews and whatnot that comes out 
I mean, they're putting a lot of stock into what's said and, and you want it to be pretty accurate. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure I don't ski like you ski and um, you're going to ski a little bit differently than, than a lot of people out there. Uh, how do you kind of balance that, uh, your personal ski style, and then how you feel like the ski is going to ski for the vast majority of the people that may end up buying it? That's a fantastic question. What I try to do is I try to throw everything at a ski that I can. When I'm on a pair of skis and I'm testing it, I am fully concentrated on what that ski is giving me, where, how, and why. Where, I'm talking about conditions. What conditions am I putting it in? And what ski is it? And how is it going to react? Like, for example, let's say I'm on a pair of skis that's more attuned with uh, you know, a slightly more jibby feel. It's got a little bit more rocker. It's maybe mid 100 at the waist. How's it going to do when I throw it in the bumps? How's it going to do when I throw it in the hard chop? Because you look at a ski, I look at a ski like that and I say, I already know what it's going to be good at. Let me throw it into what it's not meant to be for to test its versatility. And not only that, I also attune my own style and I change my styles up. I try to do, do just a dialed back, lazy style just to see how well the ski reacts, or then I start charging on it to see how the ski reacts. And then I actually do start skiing maybe not as good. I actually dial back, I actually make, I, I make some mistakes just to see how forgiving a ski is. I just put it into every single situation that I feel that the ski could be in, depending on who could purchase it and where they could use it a bit of a mentally intensive process as I try to just fully hone and focus only on the, on the skis, what they're giving me and what's being told to me whenever I have questions with the brand representative that's with me. So yeah, that's basically my plan. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the, the ski technology and, and the thought process that goes into picking out the, the perfect ski it is really something as, as you are able to do with the powder week and with the, uh, the whole, the whole group there and getting on a ton of different skis and in, in just a you know couple of days is really kind of see what skis work. And as we talked about, you know, that's tough for a lot of people to do. So they kind of have to just sometimes pick one and, and go with it and hope for the best. But as you were, you know, working with the uh, powder magazine and the powder week and testing a ton of skis, do, once the ski and testing was done, or was there was there some fun to be had on the hill and, and off the hill for that whole week? Were you guys just sequestered or together, like all staying together pretty much for the entire week? Yes and no. Yes and no. The day of a Powder Week tester, the only constant in those couple of days are the time you're on snow. And the only constants are being on snow in all morning, all afternoon. These are bell-to-bell days. They're not joking around here. Lunch in the middle, sleep around it. We, we would have a couple events smattered here and there. Some events with the brand, some get-to-know-you events so that we could understand what skis they were bringing into the fold. So basically a day of testing would be wake up, um, wake up in a couple different ways. Um, they'd usually have a breakfast with the group planned. We would usually eat together as a group, at very least uh, breakfast and lunch. Um, after breakfast, we would gather at a tent that'd be set up at one of the base areas of where we'd be at. The first three seasons that I was there was at Big Sky, Montana, which is excellent area and then the um, latter three were at red uh, red mountain resort in rossland bc which i recommend everyone go and visit sometime in your life it is probably the last bastion of what could be a true 
mountain town. It's an amazing place, Rossland. Love it. But from there, we'd go to the tent and you would actually be assigned your brands that you would be with at the very beginning of the week. So you'd know who you'd be with in the morning. You'd be with one brand in the morning and then you'd be with one brand in the afternoon. And then you'd meet up with those brand reps and have a plan. They would have four pairs of skis and we they, you got, we would just make a plan when it comes to what we want to ski, where we want to go. Would there be posseing up? Yeah, absolutely. And that's half the fun, you know? I mean, was there fun to be had? It's the whole thing is fun. That thing is fun, but, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, they let us kind of go when it comes to that. So long as we would get runs and get good feedback as imagined lunch would be in the middle of the day, uh, be for about an hour. So normally at the same spot we'd have breakfast at. And then, um, we would get with a different brand in the afternoon. The only exception to that regiment outside of what I just covered is <laughs> Aspark Day. All ski something fast and rad together. Acronym. Aren't they fun? So that day is a bit of a free for all day where they again opened up our creativity a little bit where they would hand us a list of eight brands that needed to be skied before the end of the day. The ski choice would be ours. So we would choose to ski a ski that either we wanted to get back on that we were on earlier, but didn't feel like we had enough time. Or we want to see a ski that we, you know, we're, we've been eyeing, but we don't have their brand on the rest of the day's schedules for that week. And it allowed us to get on the skis that we might not normally get on and kind of free forward a little bit. Also, costumes are recommended. Oh, nice. So they do make it, you know, fun. It's not all, you know, regimented ski testing, uh, as you were talking about. There is some some fun that can be had uh, up on the hill. And then is there is there like a big party at the end of the week? Uh, is there like a blowout sort of after testing skis, you know, pretty much nonstop for, for a few days? Yes, indeed. There is a big, there's always a big closing party at the end. Um, we had it in a couple different spots at Big Sky and we had it in one place in particular in downtown. A main staple of this party would be the moment guys would get together and they would have a DJ band and it's called the Shitty Beatles. <laughs> a reference from. Uh, where's, where's, I got to ask, where's that reference from? I'm drawing a blank here. Wayne's world. Oh, okay. That's right. Shitty Beatles. Yeah, man. They suck. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have a band and, and, uh, and did you guys would party the rest of the night pretty much? Yes. Uh, there would be a couple awards that would be handed out, which would be the captain of the week, which would be the, um, outside of the, the top outside of the tester representative and there would be an asphalt king and queen uh kind of but not quite akin to a prom if that makes sense really these awards were to the people who would purvey the most stoke who would come out and just light up everywhere they were whether it be the tent whether it be on the hill whether it be in the events afterwards but still maintain the idea of hey we're you know having a test here too and uh, Wally, when, when you were out testing skis and, and all the other guys and gals were out uh, testing skis, you know, did you break any skis? Did you ever sort of uh, run them over some rocks or something like that? Or, or did anybody ever show back up at the bottom, you know, after testing a ski for a couple runs and kind of give that shrug and say they're sorry and kind of just drop it back off with the reps and, and then, you know, walk away real quick? Did that sort of stuff ever happen or were people pretty careful with the skis they were out uh, testing? 
You know, there was a particular aspect of the first powder week I was ever at that actually concentrated on this very thing. Going back to the costumes theme, they had a shark costume there. And the shark costume would be awarded to the person who dinged up a pair of skis the worst in every day. And they would have to wear that costume the very next day upon evaluation. Um, this was a thing at Big Sky. And I don't blame them for doing it because that was my, that was my first time at Big Sky. That salad facing stuff off the tram, wind scoured. And if their snow is low, it is full on shark week. It's pretty crazy. Uh, the tradition kind of died when we moved from Montana to um, Red Mountain, but it's understandable because red uh, usually would garner, it's less craggy, less standing rock, and would require a little less snow to get that stuff covered up. But I'll tell you what, they were usually pretty careful, and I don't recall any broken teeth in my six years. Yes, no one broke anything. We tr- we really try to be respectful to the skis that the brands were bringing because the majority of us realized that they were from demo fleets and they would be going into more demo fleets. So they needed to be used a whole lot more than they were. Did I see a little bit more carnage in the three powder weeks that were in Montana? Yes, absolutely. For sure. But when we got to red, it was just, it, it just was a whole lot less. So that was, it was cool to see, but um, good news is no, I never got to wear that shark costume. It comes back from my racing days to where whenever I would hit a rock with my race skis, that would be me in the tuning room for an hour fixing it. And so the kind of the, the trigger that I got from that applied well in this particular format. Sure. Hey, Wally, it seems like skiing has been a big part of your life uh, since you could, you know, pretty much walk. And uh, you even met your wife uh, while skiing, right? I <laughs> uh, can't not love telling this story. Yep. Uh, this was back during uh, near the end of my racing days. I knew a couple of coaches at, at Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation, uh, Tyler Palmer specifically for any of those uh, long-standing Ketchum individuals that are listening. Um, and I was actually staying with him for the holiday season. And all of a sudden, he had to take a couple athletes to a NORAM race out back east. So I was just staying with him. And I had a couple of guys who I got to know at the bottom of Warm Springs and Apples. And they were trying to like coax me out. I'd been you know, training eight days straight and I was tired. So I was like, nah, man. They're like, yeah, come on now. We just got a guy who came back from Middle East and his first day back. I was like, oh, we'll see. I'm tired. And then, you know, two hours later, I said, ah, oh, screw it. Let's just go out. So I went out and the first guy I see is the guy who's back from, you know, Middle East. He goes, whoa, thanks for coming out. And we two Red Bull Vodgers. And I'm like, oh, that's how this night's going to go. So I'm sitting there a quarter way through the second one. I'm at the front. I'm at the front left area, and then where the tables are, I'm just sitting there. And um, I see this girl walk up to that very corner part of the bar, and then I'm kind of catching looks at her, and then she catches me looking at her, and then I kind of you know do the head duck thing, all sheepish and stuff, and then. I do it again and she catches me again. And so after the second time, I'm looking at myself like, you know what? Not do it. Let's just go over and just, you know, start talking to her and see what's up. I am one foot out of the table. She whirls around, strides over to me, grabs me by the wrist, 
dragged me all the way over to the right side of whiskeys. And meanwhile, the entire crowd of friends I was with, all you could hear is, so that was a, that was a very interesting introduction. And from there, we just shared tequila shots and Budweiser's all night and talked all night. Awesome. And, uh, and then now, uh, you go have a couple kids and, and settle down and, and, uh, have a great uh, story to tell about, about meeting at Whiskey's, where I think a lot of uh, ski town romances uh, started, especially, you know, uh, there in Ketchum. And, and that was, that was the, the old Whiskey's as well, right? That's right. That's right. There's a certain magic to that place for sure. But to put a second part on that story, um, I actually drove to meet up with her again two days later in a snowstorm to meet her mom and watch a Mandy Moore movie. So <laughs> it kind of flips in an interesting direction for day two. Yeah, yeah. A Mandy Moore movie. So uh, she knew she had a keeper when she could coax you into watching a Mandy Moore movie. Yep. You're making your, uh, your home there in the Salt Lake City area. And uh, which, which mountain out of the whole Salt Lake City area are you, do you consider kind of your home mountain or do you just pick whichever one has the best conditions? At this point, I consider both Cottonwood Canyons as my home. Um, I've grown to love backcountry skiing, maybe even more than lift surf right now because I've been doing lift surf since I was three. You get to a point where you look at it and you say, it's time to forage into newer grounds. And Getting to know the backcountry community out here has been so great. Like the Utah Avalanche Center, one of the best avalanche uh, predictive groups in the world. Uh, they need to be because of how interesting it can get out here when it comes to an avalanche danger aspect. But I, I can't really call resort my home. It's really hard to stay attached to one of them because they all, they all have their great things. Alta gets the most snow. Snowbird has the best terrain. Solitude has the least crowds, at least they did, and uh, Brighton uh, has some of the better side country and some sneaky good trees. So, yeah, the, the whole Wasatch Range is really my home at this point, and loved it every single last of these 19 years here. Sure. And, and bringing it back around here before I let you go, with Powder Magazine closing up shop, I know we've touched on that as kind of it was a, a big surprise to everybody that all of a sudden they were kind of just done. Is there any sort of powder week or any sort of ski testing uh, coming up for this year? I haven't heard anything, but I can't imagine that there will be a powder week this year. Um, the testing opportunities for other magazines, it's almost going off of safe assumption now, but safe assumption that they'll try to get something going. I don't know what that's going to look like logistically. I can formulate it in my head to where they keep athletes separated a little bit more at a venue that's a little bit more wide open so that they keep it as safe as humanly possible. But I, that's a really good question. And I wish I had a better answer than I don't know. We'll see what happens. But you're right. Something has to be supplied in a way because it's not like skiing is going to stop. It's not like brand production is going to stop when it comes to trying to make new and better skis every single year. Um, I would safely assume that free skier and ski are still going to go off. Um, and we'll, we'll just kind of have to see what happens. It's, there's no playbook for what's going on right now. We're kind of writing the playbook right now. So I don't think, I don't think that part of the playbook's been written yet, but it's, there's probably, there's probably at least a couple bar napkin notes out there. 
Sure. And then you worked for uh, backcountry.com for many years and, and was kind of one of the, the go-to uh, guys when anybody had any sort of questions about gear. And I would imagine skis specifically, uh, no longer with backcountry.com. You've kind of started off uh, with a, with a different company now. And, and tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was with the go for 12 long years. I wasn't the only person you could go to, but I was probably one of the first names. I, I would hope to be one of the first names out of anybody's mouth when it comes to help because I just love helping people at the end of the day. That's kind of what this is all about. But I started an opportunity with uh, GearTrade.com, which is an online gear marketplace to where any user can log on, create their own profile, list and sell any used gear that you know is taking up space in their closet or they've grown out of but it still has use because what we're trying to do with this marketplace and overall is we're trying to change buying behaviors um we have five people on staff and four out of the five have been involved in the outdoor retail industry for eight years plus and for without all that's happening in the world right now we're seeing, we, we saw a lot of people buying new and then throwing away and then buying new again. And we're seeing what's happening with that, with all the climate change that's going on, because brands were having to overproduce for that particular buying behavior. We're trying to change that buying behavior to the unnew, where people are buying something that's been used, but is still usable and just wearing it completely out. That is one of the biggest missions here at Gear Trade is to change that type of buyer behavior to finding more of something to where someone's had it, but they can still use it. Sure. And is this more of like a peer-to-peer, you know, gear exchange uh, trade uh, deal, or is it uh, where you guys go out and find some, you know, surplus stocks of skis and, and other types of gear and then uh, bring those into the fold? The peer-to-peer is how it's been since 1999, but just this year, we've not only redone the site so it's easier to buy and sell, we've also gotten our name out there a little bit more in the Google feeds, and our Facebook page has been a little bit stronger from an advertising standpoint, and it's funny that you mentioned finding those, um, finding that inventory of stuff, and that's, that's something we've been already doing. We've already reached out to a bunch of brands and we've taken in samples. We've gotten samples from them because brands make samples for trade shows, right? So what are they going to do with them after it's done? So it's, it's kind of hard for them to unload all that inventory. So we look at them and say, let us do it. So we've created ourselves as a seller on the site and we're starting to pick up when it comes to the sample sales. We started selling our own inventory um, at the end of October and it's done nothing but pick up. We have brands like Dinafit, Ordovox, Solewa. We have Scott on the site as well. Um, soft goods and footwear so far. Um, and there's plenty of stuff that's also in the works. It's been with my current job, that's been more of the fulfillment customer service side, but I've been busy getting the fulfillment side going. That's been pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, you nailed our two initial initiatives right on the head. That's it. And uh, Wally, if somebody wanted to, to get a hold of you, maybe they had a, uh, a ski-related uh, question. They're thinking about maybe you know buying a, a particular uh, type of ski or, or wondering just a little bit what might work best for them or, or wanting to find out more about a gear trade or, or really just get a hold of you about who knows what. Uh, what would be the best way to do that? 
Uh, best way would probably be personal work email. Um, it's my uh, the first letter of my first name, W. Uh, my full last name, Phillips, with two L's. And it's at wphillips at geartrade.com. So if anyone would have a question, that's the best place to reach me right now. That's the inbox I'm looking at most right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, Wally, thanks for taking some time uh, doing a little deep dive into to skis and and what goes into ski testing and again want to thank you for for coming on the talking skiing podcast thanks wally hey sure thank you there you go wally phillips joining me on the talking skiing podcast again want to thank everybody for taking a listen and if you do like what you're hearing please leave a review and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes You can also find the Talking Skiing Podcast on Instagram at Talking Skiing and on Facebook. Just look for the Talking Skiing Podcast page. And if you'd like to drop me an email with guest ideas or any questions that you might have, you can do that at TalkingSkiing at gmail.com. I'm Lenny Joseph, and we'll do it again next week right here on the Talking Skiing Podcast. Podcast.